0: Well, good morning again, church. Thanks so much for gathering here. Thank you for bringing the church into this space. We're so glad to be able to gather with you to worship King Jesus. For those of you that are gathered with us for Crosspoint at home, thanks for bringing the church into your living room or your dining room, wherever you happen to be. And Thanks for inviting us into those spaces. If you're somebody that's new to Crosspoint, if we've never had the chance to meet, my name is Jamie. It's my joy and privilege to be one of the pastors here at Crosspoint. Um, I say this each week, but it really is a joy to be able to open up God's word. Uh, we are in John, the book of John, uh, in a series called Come and See, and it's this exploration of who Jesus is. And even as we just sang a moment ago, who is this one who is the king of kings and what does it look like To live under the rule and reign of that king? What does it look like to be part of that kingdom? What does it look like to be part of this kingdom movement of Jesus? And so we're going to look at that this morning. In fact, uh, the way this is happening, where we've started early on in 2021 journeying through the book of John, church calendar would normally have us in this text this morning on Palm Sunday. But as you're probably aware, it's not Palm Sunday. But that doesn't change the fact that Jesus is still king. We get to celebrate him as king, and so I'm excited that we actually even get in a different time of the year to look at some passages that maybe only, you know, we tend to maybe look at around the Easter time during the Lent season, Uh, but we get to dive into it this morning. So here's what I want to encourage you to do is to go to John chapter 12, verses 12 to 50. So if you brought a Bible, you can turn there, or you can go to cplife.church. As you scroll down, you will see something that says sermon notes, message notes. Click there, and that'll take you to any of the notes, uh, things that you'll see up on the screen. You can follow along. The text will be there. Now, this morning, because of the length of the particular text, I'm going to take it in sections, all right? And so just kind of read through the first bit. And this morning, what we want to look at is this entry of Jesus. So what does the entry of the king teach us? What is Jesus teaching us about this upside-down, countercultural, subversive way of Jesus? What does it look like to live like the way of the king? How does he define that? What does that look like? And then this text really does call us, not only the people that are gathered in the crowd that Jesus addresses, but it calls you and me, like, what will our response to the king actually be? So that's kind of how we're going to navigate this this morning. But let me go ahead and read this text, the entry of the king, this triumphal procession. We see this, this familiar text, I'm sure, to many of you, this triumphal entry. This is what is typically referred to as Palm Sunday. But let me go ahead and read John chapter 12, verses 12 to 19. It says, The next day when the large crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, They took palm branches, and they went out to meet him, and they kept shouting, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey, and he sat on it, just as it is written. Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And his disciples did not understand these things at first. However, when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. Verse 17. Meanwhile, the crowd, which had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to testify. This, this is also why the crowd met him, because they heard that he had done this sign. Then the Pharisees said to one another, You see? You've accomplished nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. And so, if you can picture this scene, all right, and even the religious leaders, they're looking at it they're like, oh my goodness, like, despite our best intentions, our plans, there's this crowd that is gathered around, and they say, the whole world has gone after him. Now, they're speaking a truth at one level, all right, and they're, John is cluing us in, like, yeah. That's what Jesus is doing. He's gathering every tribe, tongue, and nation. There's this kingdom movement as we engage and we follow Jesus as the king. But what does it look like to go after Jesus? Like the whole world has gone after him. Are they going after him in the right way? Is this a crowd that we should look at and say, let's emulate that. Let's follow them as they follow Christ. Are they a group of people that are actually getting things? And I would put before you that what we see here is a group of people who at one level are declaring Jesus king, but it's misguided. They're not understanding what Jesus is communicating, even in his entry. Like there's some significant things that are happening in this text that we could miss. And so let's take some time to kind of dive into this a bit. Because what you have happening here, and because alliteration is of the Lord, right? Um, I want to talk about this for a moment Uh, Passover, palms, politics, and Psalm 118. All right? So um, let's dive into this. There's a couple things that are happening here. For one, it's the Passover, that's the festival. And so the Passover, if you know, is this yearly celebration of God's people. And what are they celebrating? They're celebrating their deliverance. They were enslaved in Egypt, and God rescued them. He sent the angel of death as the final plague, and anyone who had not put the the Passover lamb's blood on the doorpost, the firstborn was struck down. But God's people, they sacrificed. It was the Passover lamb. They put the blood on the doorpost. And the angel of death passed over God's people, spared their firstborn, and God enacted this miraculous deliverance. And so for this group of people, right, I mean, this was the event. Like, this was the thing on the calendar. Like, you did not miss this. And so they are gathered. And it tells us right here, right, a large crowd of the Jews, they're, they're there, all right? Like, that's what's, that's what's taking place, the large crowd that had come to the festival, And it tells us they took palm branches. We'll look at that more in a moment. And it tells us they kept shouting. They're shouting, Hosanna. It's this phrase, save us, or save. They're crying out for salvation. And so can you just picture this for a moment? I mean, this is a massive crowd. You've got thousands of people that have descended upon Jerusalem. Jesus is making his entry. The people are like, oh, there he is. And so they rush over. And it's just this maddening sort of scene. I mean, there's just all this stuff that's taking place. And they're crying out over and over and over again, and we'll look at that in more in just a moment. But it tells us as well, right, that there are, not only is the Passover, but there's these palms, and this ties very directly to sort of the political implications and why I would put before you the people there should have been excited about Jesus, but they're excited for the wrong reasons. So a few weeks ago in our journey through the book of John, John keeps introducing us to different feasts or festivals. So we've looked at the Passover, we've looked at the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles, and one that comes up is the celebration of the Jewish people that's referred to nowadays as Hanukkah. And there was a Jewish hero by the name of Judas Maccabeus, and he led this Maccabean revolt. There had been these enemies of God that had come in and desecrated the temple, and we don't have time to get into all, all of it. But he ends up with a team, with his leading this army of sorts, he ends up pushing them out. And he restores temple worship. And he became just a hero. And so there's that sort of celebration. And if you were living and traveling in that part of the world at the time, and you were among the Jewish people, you would have actually seen a coin, all right? And the coin would have had imprinted on it the face of Judas Maccabeus, but on the other side would have been palm branches. This image of the palms, the palm branches, the palm leaves. And so the significance of this, as the people gather and they do the palms, right? Maybe we have like as, you know, little kids on a Palm Sunday and they're grabbing the palms and doing that. There's nothing wrong with that. But the context, if we were to go back a couple thousand years ago, that wasn't just a cute thing for kids to carry in. This was like waving a flag. This was them saying, Jesus is here for us, for our nation, for our people. And though that is true, it's not fully true. Because Jesus' intention has never been just to rescue one people, but to use a group of people to rescue all of humanity. And it's not saying that you can't have civic and national pride or any of that. But what it is communicating and what we'll see in Jesus' response is that they're missing it. They're putting their hope in a particular like political deliverance. And the palms signify that. They're saying, Jesus is the king to liberate us from Rome. And Jesus is saying... I'm the king to liberate you from death. I'm the king to free you from hell. I'm the king that is here to do so much more than simply drive out the Romans. And he's calling us to consider as the crowds go after him, like, what are we after? Are we really after a glad submission to King Jesus? Are we viewing Jesus as our butler? We're ringing the bell and we're saying, can you get me this? Can you do this? Can you restore this? It's not that he doesn't care about your life and my life and the details and that we can't pray, but if our image of Jesus, we might never articulate it that way, but functionally, he's not Lord, he's the butler, and he's there to serve us. That's the crowd here. They're like, oh, this person, he's gonna bring about what we want. They've got their particular view of what the good life is, and Jesus is saying, guys, there's something Something far more profound. And so as they're crying out, one of the things they are doing, it's it's a good thing. Like, they're actually crying out Scripture. So they begin to cry out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. They're actually crying out a portion of Psalm 118. And many of them would have had this memorized. This would have been familiar language. And it's this sort of messianic psalm. And it's looking ahead. And so on the one level, they're right to identify, like, oh, Hosanna, save us, this need to be saved. But they're thinking of salvation purely at sort of like a surface level. And Jesus wants to disrupt that. And his very entry into this time and this place and this moment in history is showcasing something far more profound. And he's actually, if we were to go and read all of Psalm 118, we would see that though they're chanting a particular verse... It would have been helpful had they read and responded and had in mind what preceded these lines. In fact, if you were to go and read Psalm 118, you certainly would see this. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But you would also see this in verse 22 of Psalm 118. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And so on one level it is good and it's right and it's true that they would declare, Hosanna, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're adding their own little line, like the king of Israel. All of those things are true statements. But what is being set up here and what we now, as a, after a couple thousand years of history, and we can have the benefit of looking back, is there's this other story that's at play. And it's a story that's going to happen here in this upcoming week as we get into the last week of the life of Christ. It's not going to be a crowd that is cheering for him and heralding him as the king. We know not too long later, there's going to be another crowd that's gathered. I don't know if it's the same group of people or not, but presumably there'll probably be some crossover when Pilate is like, who should I release to you? What do you want me to do with Jesus? And what does the crowd chant? The crowd is chanting, crucify him. And Psalm 118 is coming true in this moment. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone And the entry of the king is just putting on display. There's a whole way of Jesus that doesn't fit our sort of conception of what it looks like to be saved. But he's not here to serve you and to serve me and just the things that we think we need. He's here rather to bring us true and ultimate freedom. And the storyline of the scriptures is he takes something that was meant as rejection and he brings about redemption. He takes something that reveals the hardness of people's heart and he brings about healing, like this is how our God is at work. And what Jesus is gonna become is this cornerstone by which the whole thing, the whole kingdom, the church, the people of God, all of it is going to be built. And so what's so interesting in here then is we see this group of people, you just imagine that scene, thousands of people, they're chanting, because it tells us they kept shouting, all right? Like, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Just imagine. Five minutes go by. Ten minutes go by. An hour goes by. I mean, chanting and chanting and chanting. People are losing their voices, right? I mean, it's just this scene. And something that hadn't occurred to me until this week as I looked at this, I always picture the sequence being Jesus comes riding in on the donkey, all right, on this young donkey, and the people begin to chant, But did you notice the detail here as we try and answer this question? How will Jesus respond? It tells us in this space, it says, the crowd gathered, they took palm branches, they're crying out. Verse 14, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. The expectation in this moment would have been for this. There is a symbol of war, And the symbol of war would have been for a person who's being proclaimed as king to come riding in on something like this. Like this stallion, this beast of an animal, right? Just coming in and declaring, you're right, I am the king. I am here to do, like, I've got this will I'm going to impose. And it was the symbol of war. And it's very intentional. I mean, isn't it interesting? The crowd's chanting and it says Jesus saw it he found, he intentionally went after, not the horse, but basically here's what Jesus picks, right? It's like, wait a minute, that is not what we had in mind, right? Like if you're leading this movement, you're like, I'm with this guy. It's like, really, that's what you're riding in on, right? Now, Jesus' intentionality here is seen because the donkey, this young donkey, and as Zechariah chapter nine, verse nine is referenced, yes, it's a picture of a king, but the donkey you represented, it was a symbol of peace. And so Jesus is communicating, my kingdom operates by different rules. There's a way of the king that we're going to look at here in a moment that is introduced even by his entry. Like everything is speaking. Yes, there are words that communicate, but everything that Jesus is doing is loaded with significance. And so he goes and he gets this young donkey, this colt, and he puts, gets on that And he rides in on that. This is not majestic. And he's saying, I'm riding in on a symbol of peace. You want bloodshed? You want war? You want me to upend the Romans? And he's like, you don't actually even realize what you're crying out for. You're thinking, Hosanna, save us from what's going on circumstantially. And Jesus rides in on this donkey, this symbol of peace, and says, I'm going to save you. Yes, but it's not in the ways that you expect. In fact, I'm gonna save you from what is ultimately ailing you, what your actual issue is, and it's this sin problem, that we deserve death. So the entry of the king communicates. Now, look what happens here, is Jesus, who rides in on the symbol of peace, How is he going to achieve peace? And so this is what we'll look at in these next few verses. I'll read from verse 20 through around 34, 36 in there. We'll look at the way of the king. It says, Now some Greeks were among those who went up to worship at the festival. And they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and they requested of him, Sir, we want to see Jesus. So Philip went and told Andrew. Then Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Jesus replied to them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. The one who loves his life will lose it, and the one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there my servant also will be. And if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Verse 27, now my soul is troubled. What should I say? Father, save me from this hour. But that is why I came to this hour. So Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. And the crowd standing there heard it and said it was thunder. Another said an angel has spoken to him. But Jesus responded, this voice came not for me, but for you. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. As for me, if I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And he said this to indicate what kind of death he was about to die. Then the crowd replied to him, we have heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever, so how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? And Jesus answered, the light will be with you only a little longer. Walk while you have the light so that darkness doesn't overtake you. The one who walks in darkness doesn't know where he's going. And while you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become children of light. Jesus said this, then went away and hid from them. And so this section starts out with a request. Jesus has come in. The crowd has been chanting for who knows how long. They're waving the palm branches, they've got particular expectations. And it says there's some Greeks that come, and they simply say, sir, we want to see Jesus. And it's sort of, it's related, but anecdotal certainly, but I think is an interesting picture. If you remember the story of Jesus and his birth, it tells us there are wise men that came to see Jesus. They wanted to see the newborn king, and these Gentiles traveled from the east, And now here as we enter into the final week of King Jesus, there's a group of people that are coming to see Jesus, to see the King, another group of Gentiles traveling from the West. We want to see Jesus. And it's this little clue here that the work of Jesus, the way of the King His purposes, his kingdom. It's bigger than one little location. It expands the entire globe. It includes every tribe, tongue, and nation. Like, this is just another layer, another way to say what Jesus is doing is so profound. It's so beautiful. It's so beyond anything that people would have expected. And yet, I think we should see this. Like, it kind of comes off as this non sequitur here, right? Like, can you imagine, like, you send an email to somebody, all right, and say, hey, Could we meet up? I'd love to discuss whatever. You got some topic you want to discuss. Can we grab coffee, you know, this Wednesday at 10? And the person writes back and says, I'm ready to die. Like, that would be kind of weird, right? You're like, whoa, hey, uh, are you okay? Like, how can I help, right? Like, that would seem kind of a weird response to, hey, can I see you? But this is exactly what is taking place here. Because every time Jesus speaks of the hour, he's speaking about the hour of his death, and so you sort of picture like this hourglass and the sand has been draining out of it and Jesus is saying, all right, he's making it very, very clear to them in verse 23, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. The way of the king goes against all of our modern self-focused sort of sensibilities. And the way jesus communicates that is by using this illustration. Jesus was obviously this masterful teacher and he would grab things that people would have been familiar with and what he's going to make reference here to is this sort of agriculture this sort of agrarian imagery. Now, I'm not a farmer. I'm not a green I don't have a green thumb. I don't have a garden. The house we bought had a garden on the side. I've turned it into a gigantic pile of weeds that I'm afraid to even walk back there now, right? Like, so that, that's kind of me, all right? But what is being communicated here is Jesus saying, I need you to understand how life springs up from the ground. And so he tells them this in verse 24. He says these words, truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to, and the language really there is, into the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces much Fruits. So this entry of the king, Jesus comes in, riding, he's in this humble spot, All right, he's declaring, I'm gonna bring about peace, he's blowing away kind of all their sort of categories, and then he says, the way of the king looks like this. The way of peace, the way that you're actually going to find life is not by making it all about you and exploring that the self and you do you and all of that, but rather, he says, it's like a seed that gets dug, in, gets put, into a hole in the ground, and the dirt covers it up. And after a certain amount of time, new life begins to spring forth. And Jesus, in this illustrative sort of way, is saying, this is how it's going to go. The hour is about my death, and my body will be put in the ground My faithfulness to God will take me to a Roman cross and I will die the death that all of you deserve. This crowd that's there, that's so enamored with him, he's like, I'm gonna go die for your sins. And us here this morning that have been gathered and singing worship songs to Jesus, he's looking ahead and going, hey, I'm dying for you as well. And I'm gonna be put into the ground. But like a seed that goes into the ground, there will come this new life. That's the way this kingdom works, as Paul Miller in his book, The J Curve, describes. The way of Jesus is this descent to death and then up to newness of life. That's what we need to remember. Now, you and I all brought things in here this morning that we are carrying, what if our perspective began to shift? What if we began to embrace what Jesus is talking about here that maybe we would put this way, that there's sort of this planting principle, that something has to go into the ground, it actually has to die, and when it dies, there'll be a newness of life. Everything screams at us like, no, you do, you avoid death, you avoid pain, you avoid suffering. And I'm not saying we gleefully go after it, but what if this reframed things for a moment and realize, okay, Maybe there's something that's gonna die and something new is going to be brought forth. What if this is the way of the king? What if this is what it looks like to be part of God's people? Instead of going after what is in it for us, as Jesus would say as he continues in this particular text, the one who loves his life, says the one who loves it, like his soul will actually lose it, and the one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. It's not a call to, like, bad self-esteem, but it is a call to say, what's ultimate? Is Jesus Lord, or are you trying to function in that place? One's going to bring death, and one's going to bring life. And the planting principle says this. The more that we experience death, the more there can be this resurrection and this newness of life. I mean, just think about it at a basic level, right? Like, we know these sort of principles to be true. I don't know about you, but most of you are probably aware, there's sort of this thing happening in, in the world where some athletes get together and they play some sports, right? Um, they compete against, against one another. And so we've been watching the Olympics late at night, literally the men's, uh, the, the swimming, the four by 100 medley relay last night, I was screaming at the TV so loud, just yelling America over and over again, right? To the point I was like, I turned to Heather, I was like, oh no, I gotta preach tomorrow. Like my voice is all strained. I'm like trying to figure out like what's going on, but dialed into that. now. You can look at that, all right? And you can watch the greatest athletes in the world compete. And if you've ever tried to train for anything, I think you at least know this, that they didn't just show up there in Tokyo, right? Caleb Dressel didn't just wake up looking like he does right now, right? Um, Caleb Dressel isn't somebody that's just like, oh, oh, look, there's there's some water. I think I'll hop in. Oh, look, I think I'll win a few gold medals, right? You know that training, what goes into it, like there's a death. The training, the sacrifice, if you're going to experience this sort of joy on the other side, you know that this goes into it. You know that those athletes, when they woke up for 5 a.m. swim practices, were like, ugh, this is a death, like kill me now, right? Like that's just sort of their mindset. This is killing me. How many of you ever trained for something, whether it be athletic or in the realm of arts, or there's something, the skill you're trying to cultivate? And we use language like that, oh my goodness, this is killing me. And it feels like something is dying, but it's going to bring about resurrection. Like We know this to be true. You think about relationships. You think about marriage. You think about Paul's instructions to husbands in Ephesians chapter five, and he says, husbands, love your wives. Okay, how? As Christ loved the church. Okay, how did Christ love the church? Oh, he died for the church. So apparently for a marriage to flourish, it has to be a dying to self. It has to be a willingness to die for the other, to put aside preferences and all of that. I've yet to meet anyone that has a flourishing marriage It's like two just super selfish people. It doesn't work. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Like there has to be a death in order to lead to life. Those of you that are parents here in this room, right? You want your children to flourish. You want the family to flourish. If you're not willing to give of yourself at great cost, it will not happen. Now, there's no guarantee of how it's all going to turn out, even if you do sacrifice. I get that we live in a fallen and broken world, right? But sacrifice is involved. And my guess is, you here that are parents, right? As you make those sacrifices, I'm sure you're not, I'm guessing you're not having moments where your children are turning to you and say, bless you, mother and father. I mean, thank you for your sacrifice. The way you got up for me in the middle of the night, you brought me that six cup of water. Thank you. I owe you everything, right? And before we start judging our children, just think what you did to your parents. You did the exact same thing, right? It's a death. There is a dying to self in order for something to flourish. Think about forgiveness relationally, how easy it is to hold on to resentment and to bitterness. And when you offer a true forgiveness to somebody, the only way it can be described is a kind of death. I'm not gonna hold on to that anymore. I'm not gonna hold that against you anymore. I wanna see repair. I wanna see restoration. I wanna see flourishing. But man, it feels like a death. And I think that's accurate. So what we see here, this sort of planting principle, what is true in nature, is true just in so many other aspects of life. And ultimately, the way of the king is true for our salvation. This is why Paul would write in Romans chapter 6 as he talks about our baptism. I mean, look at the language that, that's here. Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into what? Into his death. Therefore we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. This is how it works. You want to know why there's so much pain and frustration and just angst that exists out there in the world and here in the church and all of it, just amongst humanity, we keep trying to play by a way that says, make it about you. You be sovereign. Use God as a butler. He's he's there to just, at your beck and call. And Jesus is communicating in no uncertain terms. Listen, my friends, he's like, the only way you're going to find life is if there's actual sacrifice. So the question becomes, will you die to self? And as you see the reality that Jesus was put into the ground for you and that three days later, by his power, he was raised from the dead, that you and I now are invited to be part of this resurrection movement, these resurrection people. And we get the invitation to live in a whole new way, to not pursue self, to die to our preferences and our expectations and some of even our hopes and dreams so that other people might actually flourish, it is impossible to have a flourishing church with a group of individuals living for self. What it takes to have a flourishing church is all of us saying we're in. I mean, the call to community you heard at the beginning of the service isn't just so you have something else on the calendar, right? Oh, you're not busy enough. Well, I don't know. We'll get some groups for you, right? That is not the point at all. There's a million things. The importance of something like that is because we need to be in environments where other people know us, we know them, and we have an environment to sacrifice for one another. You're like, oh, but it's gonna be too costly. Yeah, that's sort of the point. And in that, we actually experience life. Like how many of us, just as an aside, right, have had those moments where we don't actually feel like engaging? we're like, I don't know if I wanna go to this. I don't know if I wanna go spend this time. And so you just sort of like, uh, or you're the people that are hosting, right? True confession here, we host a community group. 50% of the time we're like, we can cancel, right? Like, all right, and there's nothing against our group. I'm just saying like, there is this tax, right? And sometimes we can just lose sight. And every single time on the other side of it, I'm so glad that we spent time. I'm so glad. Like these, these sacrifices, it's the only thing that's going to lead to flourishing into life. And Jesus is saying, this is the way of salvation. And so in verses 27 to 28, it says, now my soul is troubled. And he's in anguish. It's going to cost him everything. The language there isn't like, oh, he's a little annoyed or he's a little frustrated. He's in agony thinking about this. What should I say? Father, save me from this hour. This is like the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Can this cup pass? But he says, not my will, but your will be done. But this is why I came to this other. So, Father, glorify your name. And then the father speaks. And they're like, oh, wow, it's unexpected thunder, right? Something that's an angel. And it's God speaking. And Jesus says it's not for him to be encouraged so that they would actually know. Jesus wants them to know that this is the way of the king. And as we drop down a few verses, he says this. So while you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become children of light. The call there, our response, as we'll look at in these last few verses, how are you and I responding to this? How are you and I responding to the God-man Jesus who literally was like that seed. He was put into the ground. He died, was buried, and then three days later rose again. And he did it for the Father's glory and for your joy. Does your pattern of life, does my pattern of life, reflect that now or have we taken that really good news and said cool thanks god i'll I'll get back to you when i need something and then we wonder why we lack joy we wonder why there's just so much frustration because we've not followed the way of christ now listen i'm saying that i forget this all the time i'm not up here with the microphone because i've got this figured out All this is, is like, this is the true thing, right? And we just gotta spend some time like looking at it and say, okay, is this, are we following Christ together? And he's saying, the light is here. Jesus is shining the light. The Holy Spirit is at work right now. Not just when you leave this place and maybe think back on it and try and apply something as good as that can be. The Holy Spirit is active right in this place. The Holy Spirit right now, if you open yourself up to the work of the Spirit, is revealing to you, oh, that's that place of darkness. I need the light of the gospel to shine. Oh, yeah, I have not been willing to follow the way of Jesus. Oh, I've made it about me and my needs or my comfort or my wants. And he's calling us. This call to believe is like, well, we trust him. We're not here to say and this is how it's always going to going to turn out but will you trust him because as you follow the way of Jesus you're walking alongside Jesus and you're in the presence of Jesus and that's where you want to be and circumstances may change and shift around you but if you're following Jesus by his enabling power and grace by the work of the spirit that's where we find life so look what Jesus says is this sort of call to it, and there's some confusing words admittedly in here, but we'll pick it up in verse 37, and he begins to talk about some of these prophecies. He says, even though he had performed so many signs in their presence, they did not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet who said, Lord, who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This is why they were unable to believe, because Isaiah, and he's quoting Isaiah chapter six here, also said, he has blinded their hearts and hardened their, or sorry, had blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so that they would not see with their eyes or understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. If you go and read Isaiah 6, it's a fascinating account. Isaiah gets this picture of the glory of God. God asks like, who will go for me? Isaiah's like, here I am, send me. God's like, cool. All right, go ahead and preach. And here's what he says to him: Their eyes will be blinded, their hearts will be hard. It's gonna be amazing. Get after it, right? Like that's what he communicates to Isaiah. And this is playing out. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke about him. Nevertheless, it tells us, many did believe in him among the rulers, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him so that they would not be banned from the synagogue. So trying to like hedge their bets a little bit. They're trying to be kind of both sides of the fence. For they loved human praise more than praise from God. And I wish that was an old story that had been retired a long time ago that no longer affects us, but it affects me, it affects you, this desire for the praise of men more than the praise of God. And it tells us in this sort of summary fashion, Jesus cried out. He doesn't just flippantly say, I mean, like, there's this, there's this passion, there's this angst. He's crying out, the one who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And the one who sees me sees him who sent me. He says, I have come as a light into the world so that everyone who believes in me would not remain in darkness If anyone hears my words and doesn't keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. And the one who rejects me and doesn't receive my sayings has this as his judge. The word I have spoken will judge him on the last day, for I have not spoken on my own, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a command to say everything I have said, and I know his command is eternal life. So the things that I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. There's a ton in here. But we'll simplify it and just say, listen, it's a call, Jesus, saying, will you actually believe? Will you trust? Some, perhaps for the very first time, but also in this ongoing sense. Are you trusting the way of Jesus? And yes, there's difficult. key in this text. I'd be lying to you if I said, oh, I perfectly know how to resolve that it says, not just that their hearts were hardened. Like, I get that, because I know that to be true in my own life, right? And if you're honest with yourself, you know your heart is hardened at times, your eyes are blind. But then it says, God did this. Okay, so does that mean they're not responsible? And yet the scriptures over and over and over again are unequivocally clear. Like, we are responsible, and yet God is sovereign. How that all works together? We're gonna have a great conversation with Jesus one day, right? But what we have to rest in is like, this is true. And the sovereignty of God, one of the things we do see over and over again, is that he will work through the hardness of a human heart to bring about his purposes, to bring about healing. He's not pleased with what Judas did and yet this betrayal that would lead to the death of Jesus and this death of Jesus that would bring about salvation. I mean, do you see? This should cause us to stand in awe of like God is literally working all things together for good. And what we need to be paying attention to is not trying to solve that sort of theological debate but say like where is my heart hardened? Ray Ortland, in his commentary on Isaiah 6 says it this way. Every time you hear the word of God preached, you come away from that exposure to his truth either a little closer to God or a little further away from God, either more softened toward God or more hardened toward God. But you are never just the same. And if you think you can hold the gospel at arm's length in critical detachment, that very posture reveals that you are already deadened. The same truth enlivening someone else is hardening you. Friends, we all walked in here together today, and we are either going to leave more softened to the things of God or more hardened to the things of God. There is no neutral. He continues, And don't tell yourself that if only God would perform a miracle in your life, you would believe and open up. Jesus performed miracles, and the people who saw them only became further hardened. And if God's word isn't saving you, what will? Receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls, James 1, 21. What are we trusting in? What praise are you and I seeking? Do we, like Jesus, have the posture of God? I want you to be glorified. If we understood what Christ has done for us, the praise of men would seem so silly. Who cares Who cares what they think of you? In the most non-arrogant but confident way possible, if you understand and I understand that you're a son, that you're a daughter, what people say about you literally just bounces off. Like there's this sense in which we're sort of this invincible, untouchable, if we really truly understood how God sees us. The praise of men means nothing. It's a silly, futile, futile, vapor sort of thing to chase after. And Jesus tells us in this section, he tells us, let me jump back to 46 to 47, I have come as the light into the world that everyone who believes in me, right? He's like, I want your eyes to be opened. And in verse 48, the one who rejects me and doesn't receive my sayings has this as his judge. The word I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Jesus can say, honestly, I didn't come to judge Come to save, I came to save the world. But there is a second coming where he will come back as the judge. And he's pleading with people. Trust me. Live according to my way. Live the way of the kingdom. Embrace the sort of principle of planting and being willing to die when you realize that Jesus has died for you and watch the resurrection begin to occur. Not just someday off in the future, though that is true, but right here, right now. What would it look like for us to be resurrection people who would see clearly by the light of the gospel shining into your heart and my heart so that we could be the church Christ has called us to be? In the convicting words of C.S. Lewis in his essay, The Abolition of Man, says this, you cannot go on explaining away forever. You will find that you've explained explanation itself away. You can't go on seeing through things forever. The whole point of seeing through something is to see something through it. It is good that the window should be transparent because the street or garden beyond it is opaque. How if you saw through the garden too? If you see through everything, then everything is transparent. But a holy, transparent world is an invisible world. To see through things, to see through all things is the same as not to see. So my friends, as we get ready for communion and we remember and hopefully we see more clearly what Jesus has done, be reminded of these words out of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness the one who enacted Genesis 1 into, 2. He has shown in your hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. This is what we remember. This is what we celebrate. Do you get that? The picture, the powerful God who spoke the universe into existence says this that he has shown in your heart. He cares that deeply about you. He is revealing things to you right now. His Holy Spirit is at work to showcase places of darkness that the light of the gospel may shine. And so we'll respond to this by taking some time. What do we need to repent of? Let's remember the gospel and let's rejoice together. And So I'm gonna pray for us. The worship team's gonna come up. We're gonna participate in communion. So if you're a follower of Christ, during this next song, when you're ready, come up and get the elements Bring it back to your seats, and we'll partake together after the song concludes. If you're a follower of Christ, you're gathered with us at home. You can get elements together, and we'll guide you through as well. But let me go ahead and pray for us now, and then we will continue to worship together. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace. Jesus, we thank you for your willingness to bring glory to the Father, even though it would cost you everything. We thank you that you were that seed that was willing to die. Be covered with dirt so that there might be a newness of life, that there might be resurrection. So Holy Spirit, be doing that work now. I pray you'd bring any who haven't trusted in you. I, think, I pray you'd bring them from death to life this morning. And God, I pray for the areas of darkness that still present in all of our hearts and lives. Holy Spirit, would you shine the light of the gospel into those spaces. May we experience the joy of repentance Realizing we have nothing to prove. That our resume can be torn up because we now have the resume of Christ. We have Christ's righteousness. We thank you for that. And Spirit, be at work now to prepare our hearts for communion. Thank you for this meal. God, I pray as we continue to worship, I pray that you would get your glory and that we as your people would experience just a deep, deep joy. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.